Up next, Rob Smith is problematic, part of the Gingrich 360 Network. I loved Hillbilly Elegy, but leftist critics hated it. And you know why? Because it dismantles and destroys the left's white privilege narrative. This is Rob Smith is problematic. Last week, I had a little time on my hands for the Thanksgiving holiday, and I decided to pop open Netflix and watch a new movie called Hillbilly Elegy. If you have not heard about this, this is director Ron Howard's adaptation of J.D. Vance's memoir about growing up very poor in lower working class Ohio. I told you that I would do better. You always say that, you're lying. I always try. You gotta think about these kids. What do you think I've been thinking about since I was 18 years old, huh? Never had a life where I wasn't thinking about the kids. Going to the Marines, going to Yale Law School, building a better life for himself while he was dealing with his mother's drug addiction. Now, This movie has a a powerhouse cast. It's it's directed by Ron Howard. It's got Glenn Close in it and Amy Adams, two of my favorite actresses who have inexplicably never won an Academy Award. These These are two brilliant actresses. And I watched the movie... And this is what I was expecting when I sat down for Hillbilly Elegy, because I I have read the book. I read the book about a year ago, and I'll talk about the book in a little bit. But what I was expecting, because I looked at a lot of the reviews and these critics just seemed to take delight in savaging this movie. And, you know, guys, look, I'm all about mess. I love some mess. I love a good, bad movie. Showgirls is literally one of my favorite movies of all time because it is so awful that it transcends to a level of greatness. So I thought that this may be what I was going to get from Hillbilly Elegy because they were talking about, oh, Glenn Close is so this and it's so bad and it's so this and so that. So I sit down and watch the movie And I really liked it. I really enjoyed this movie. And I'm going to talk about why I enjoyed the movie so much and why I connected with it. Is this the most amazing movie I've ever seen? No, absolutely not. What it is is a good movie that's anchored by great performances. Glenn Close is amazing. Glenn Close plays Mama, Mama, the matriarch of the entire family. And, you know, she's smoking cigarettes and, and she's gruff. And, you know, she's telling young J.D. Vance, who's getting in with the wrong crowd, you know, get those assholes off my line. You know, just just doing this thing. And a lot of these these liberal movie critics, and I'm going to get into to what some of them specifically had to say a little bit later, but they like to call this, oh, this is a caricature. You know, she's doing drag. It's this, it's that. When I watched Glenn Close playing this woman, it reminded me of my own grandmother. I swear to you, it reminded me of my own grandmother because my grandmother is, you know, she smoked for years. She drunk for years. She was just, she is, because she's still living, thank God. She's a hard-edged woman that is hard on people. And she was hard on me when I was growing up because I was kind of going down that same path. So you got this amazing performance by Glenn Close. Amy Adams plays J.D. Vance's mother, Bev, who struggles with addiction. And this is another just really incredible performance that is full of empathy and compassion for people that are dealing with drugs and dealing with addiction. And this woman was on heroin. She was on opioids. She lost her job. She lost everything. It's really compelling. The entire storyline and, and everything like this, it, it's very compelling because it's based on reality. 
And what I enjoyed about the movie outside of, outside of the book, because I read the book as well, it's a very simple story. This is about a man that comes from hard scrabble beginnings, deals with addiction, all of this stuff in his life, and for whatever reason, decides that he's going to go into the Marines and he's going to make something better out of himself. So he goes into the Marines and, and he goes to Yale Law School and he kind of enters this elite world. And there were notes about when he entered the elite world that I found very compelling and stuff that I connected with as well. And the reason why I thought this movie was so successful is because it made a very simple and very wise choice, in my opinion, to stay away from the politics that people associate the book with. Now, the book Hillbilly Elegy was a was a huge hit four years ago when, you know, liberal media and, and all these talking heads and, and these people who very rarely venture outside of New York and D.C. use this book to kind of, quote unquote, explain Trump voters or explain what happened, explain why all of these white working class people voted for Donald Trump. And the idea that Donald Trump's presidency was only about white working class people, it, it always missed the point because we all know that the median income for the average Trump voter was $90,000. That was an inconvenient truth because it didn't fit the mainstream media narrative. And what I enjoyed the most about this movie is that it stayed away from trying to say, this is why this happened. This is why his mother became an addict. This is why Mama is so hard. This is why, you know, he did well. It stays away from that. And it, it really does just tell you the story. And what it's about, just even on another level outside of that, it's about these systems of dysfunction and poverty, how they keep going and how one person can break the cycle. And the reason why I connected with this movie so much is that I am J.D. Vance in a lot of different ways. I'm definitely the, the J.D. Vance of, of my family, if we're, if we're making him a, a, a verb here, an adjective or to describe people. But I am the first person in my family to get a bachelor's degree, let alone a master's degree from, from Columbia University, from the Ivy League, the first person to earn six figures in a year, and the first person to do all these different things. And and that's not to brag, it's just to say what it is. And, and you guys know that I, I have a graduate degree from Columbia, and Columbia is bullshit. And I'll talk uh, about the Ivy League in, in a different episode. But I was the person to break that cycle in my family. And it is hard. It is not easy kind of carrying that weight. And that was why I connected to it so much, because I am J.D. Vance in my family. And there was a really interesting scene. And this was another thing that critics sneered at. There is a scene where J.D. is in Yale Law School and he's he's interviewing trying to get some big clerkship or, or something like that in D.C. for the summer. And it's not a, a sit-down interview, but it's one of these places where you go and it's a cocktail party. So you're meeting with the partners of the firms and you're meeting with all these these big people. And he doesn't know, you know, there's two kinds of red wine and two kinds of white wine. He doesn't know the difference between the kinds of red wine and white wine. And he sits down at the table and he sees all these forks and all these spoons and he doesn't know what he's doing. And I lived that almost exact moment. I had never sat down for one of these sit down, you know, dinners, all, all the forks and all the spoons and stuff. Obviously, you know, it's something that I do fairly regularly now. But when I was in undergrad, I had never done this before. 
And it wasn't a high pressure situation. It was really just, I think I was involved in kind of like the, um, it's something the student honor society or something like that. I had, I had a pretty good GPA in undergrad and, and I got invited to this dinner. But I remember the terror that I felt sitting down, sitting across the table from all these people and not knowing which fourth to use and not knowing which spoon to use and and not knowing that one plate was a charger and not knowing that, you know, the servers was come from this side. So when people sneer at stuff like that, you know, these, all the, the, these highfalutin movie critics, when they sneer at stuff like that and in extension, the movie itself, they're missing the point and they're missing the point of the lived experience that I think that the movie does a very good job at, at effectively portraying. And this is why there's a disconnect between liberal critics and audience members. Because look, you know, you go to Rotten Tomatoes, which is the film criticism aggregation site. And, and you know, a good score in Rotten Tomatoes is generally 65%. That means it's certified fresh. That means that all the critics like it, blah, blah, blah. The Rotten Tomatoes score for this movie is 27. That means that when people are judging this movie solely by what the critics think, then it's it's a turkey. It's it's, it's a bad movie. But the audience score is 82%. So the disconnect here is that people are seeing this movie on Netflix and people are liking it. So this is, again, the disconnect between real people in the world existing and, and, you know, elitist movie critics that live in New York and L.A. And and here's a, a couple of things that the critics said. The Observer in the U.K., you know, the U.K., The Observer, called it a prestige slog full of flat, sneering caricatures. The New Yorker has said, Howard, whether intentionally or not, has made a libertarian's fantasy. And this is what the rap out of L.A. said. It isn't interested in the systems that create poverty and addiction and ignorance. It just wants to pretend that one straight white guy's ability to rise above his surroundings means that there's no excuse for everyone else not to have done so as well. And this is, again, the disconnect between critics and between what real people think. Hillbilly Elegy has been trending on Netflix for days. People are watching it. People are loving it. I've talked about this on my social media. Um, I did a video on my Instagram account. If you guys aren't following me on Instagram, please follow me at Rob Smith online. But there's a disconnect and because audiences are finding this and they are loving it. And I looked at a lot of the comments on Instagram and so many of the comments from all of you guys out there are people that were raised like this, or they have some sort of connection to what was going on, just like the connection that I told you that I had when, when it comes to sitting down with, with all the forks and all the spoons and, and the connection where you're a working class person and you are thrown into, into these circles of, of very elite, very wealthy people. And people are connecting to that. And people are talking a lot about it on my social medias and people are connecting to it in the same way that I am. And I'm going to tell you guys, I'm going to be very honest, because sometimes when I do this podcast, I swear to God, I don't know who listens to it. Somebody is because it's doing very well and you guys are sharing and talking. That's great. Um, so I say things on this podcast just for 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 you guys, for my problematics, so that we can all talk and, and have a real conversation. You guys see... What whatever it is that my life looks like from the outside, if I'm uh, at Trump Tower, if I'm taking pictures with Trumps or or if I'm at the White House or if I'm doing all this stuff, 
look, even to this day, I am around people. Do you realize that there are people that have so much wealth in this world that they just don't, that it just like things just don't even matter. And so those are the kinds of people that I'm around a lot just because of my job and just because of what I do. And there is a discomfort sometimes when I go from, in my mind, Rob from Akron, Ohio, who joined the infantry and went to college and is now a political commentator. And you're going into these circles with people that are from deep wealth. And I'm not just talking about Trumps. I'm talking about people that are just from old money or doing this. And, and you know, there's that part of you that always feels, I don't want to call it imposter syndrome, but that, there's that person that always feels like I have to, I have to keep it real and I have to be true to myself. But even though I may have notoriety and all of this stuff and in and, and whatever, I will still never be like some of these people because I wasn't born and raised in it. And and that's the disconnect sometimes. And I still feel that to this day. And that's why I wanted to talk about Hillbilly Elegy so much is because I thought that it did a really good job at portraying some of these kind of class tensions that exist in American society. Because the thing about the left, and, I, and I'm going to get into the leftist white privilege narrative in a little bit, but the thing about it is that so many of the conversations that we have in America and, and in American politics, and when we talk about what's the, the right or wrong way to move forward, are predicated in the idea that everything is about racism and that everything is about, you know, Black people have it so hard or Latino people have it so hard or whatever. And we miss these class distinctions because a lot of people don't realize that poor white people exist. I am from Akron, Ohio. I know poor white people. I've known poor white people my entire life. Like I, I've been around poor working class, lower middle class, whatever white people, because I was poor working class, lower middle class, whatever. And that is the conversation that people seem to be afraid of having in the society. And at first, I thought that the sneering by these liberal critics was just an example of just the sneering liberal elitism that we see from people that write for the New Yorker and the Guardian and all in the New York Times, you know, all of these elitist institutions. And we talk about that a lot. And that is true. But now I realize that this is about a lot more than that. Liberal critics hate hillbilly elegy so much because they hate any conversation that revolves around poor white people. We are told over and over and over again about white privilege, about institutional racism, about all of these different things in the context of why Black Americans seem to have it so much harder than everybody else. And that brings me to the white privilege conversation. And this one I'm going to be a little bit problematic, so bear with me. Do I think white privilege is real? Yes. But, and it is a huge but, and I have a but, and I'm going to lay it all out for you after the break. This entire conversation about white privilege that has been taken and, and mutated and, uh, I don't know, pushed forth by, by a lot of the race hustlers on the left and, and a lot of the grifters on the left right now, started with a woman named Peggy McIntosh in 1989. She wrote a, a paper that got published, and, and she was the first person to ever say, okay, 
this is what white privilege is. And this is a white woman that wrote this. And she explored it in the context of herself. And there's a couple of things that she wrote. And, and I want to share them with you. And I want to talk about this a little bit because so many of you know, our conservative media influencers, and this is not, and I don't, you know, I'm not throwing shade or, or hating or reading or anything like that, um, because I, there's space for everybody. But I think that a, a lot of people that have this conversation, it's just so, it's so knee jerk. It's like, white privilege is a myth because I did this and I did that and blah, blah, blah. And, and it doesn't, it doesn't add for context or nuance. And, and that's what we do here. We do context and we do nuanced and we have real conversations because I think that problematics are smart enough to have real conversations. I have a very high level of respect for this audience. So this is why I decided to take this on. So this is one of the things that she wrote. A couple of things that she wrote, and I'm just going to read them all to you. She says, I can, if I wish, arrange to be in the company of people of my race most of the time. If I should need to move, I can be pretty sure of renting or purchasing housing in an area which I can afford and in which I would want to live. That's very interesting. We're going to get back to that. I can be pretty sure that my neighbors in such a location will be neutral or pleasant to me. I can go shopping alone most of the time, pretty well assured that I will not be followed or harassed. And these two are very interesting. Whether I use checks, credit card, or cash, I can count on my skin color not to work against the appearance of financial reliability. And this last one is very interesting. I can swear or dress in secondhand clothes or not answer letters, that's dated, <laughs> without having people attribute these choices to the bad morals, the poverty, or the illiteracy of my race. That is interesting. So let's unpack that. A lot of the critiques that I get on the left, and this is a this is a very easy, lazy critique, and this is a lot of critiques that I get from the left, um, from a lot of white liberals and a lot of black liberals. So the idea is is that the way I present myself to the world in terms of how I speak, how I dress, how I look, is not necessarily who I am. This is something that I'm putting on for the benefit of white people or for the benefit of the majority or whatever you want to call it. That is that is their lazy, easy way to, to explain me away, which is what they like to do, because how could this black person be this and, and think conservative and he's gay, blah, blah, blah. And, and we've gotten into that stuff and, and we will talk a lot about that stuff in the future. But this one is interesting because this idea that she put in the, in the white privilege thing that she can swear, she can basically just act like, just act like crazy in public and not have that attributed to every white person. That is real because y'all know problematics that I could not walk down the street looking or acting crazy because people would just be thinking, oh, this is another hood rat ass black dude. It's oh, it's just another ratchet. It's just another whatever. I cannot do that in this world. So that is one way <laughs> I do not have the option to do that in the world. I can't walk around looking crazy and expect to be treated a certain type of way. And I can't walk around like this without people attributing, if I decided to walk around like a crazy person and just act ratchet or whatever, 
y'all know everybody's gonna be like, oh my God, you know, just those black people, like, they can't get it together. And so there's an element of that that is real because we see white people all the time, like acting, acting crazy, just, just acting the plump fool. And <laughs> I live in Florida now, so I see a lot of that. No shade to Florida. I love Florida, but you know, it's uh, Florida is real. But if they're doing that, it's not like all white people are this. It's just like, man, look at that person right there. And so that is one of the things that is very real about this quote unquote white privilege conversation. And another thing that is real about this is the idea that, you know, she says she can go shopping alone most of the time, pretty well assured that I will not be followed or harassed. I've been followed in high end stores. It happens that it doesn't matter how famous you are. It doesn't matter. It just, it happens and it is a thing. So, and, and we can sit here and do this all day. But I just wanted to give you a couple of examples in which I think that the white privilege stuff was like, okay, so there's something to that. But on the same token, and this is me playing devil's advocate here because that's that's problematic, it's what I do. This idea of white privilege that comes from the left, it seems to want to relieve the responsibility that I have over my own life from me. And say that anything bad that I experience in life has to do with racism or my lack of quote unquote white privilege or or the idea that I am not in control of my own destiny. And to bring this back to Hillbilly Elegy and the reason why the left hates this movie so much and the reason why so many of these critics hate this movie is because Hillbilly Elegy and pretty much anything that has to do with poor white people dents this leftist white privilege narrative. Now, we just talked about some ways in which I think that, you know, white people, either if you want to call it privilege, if you want to have it better in society, whatever, that's real. Because we talk in reality, this is a very real thing. But if white privilege was this kind of get out of jail free card that all white people had no matter what, then why are there poor white people? Why are there families like J.D. Vance's? Why are so many of you guys connecting to a movie like Hillbilly Elegy? Because you have seen this stuff in your own lives, whether you're white, black, Latino, Asian, whatever, because you've seen this stuff. And so if white people were just living in this this world of, of rainbows and unicorns and American Express gold cars just because they were white, we wouldn't have poor white people. We wouldn't have an opioid epidemic in rural America. We wouldn't have stories like J.D. Vance's. We wouldn't have white suffering in America. Because the reason why, and you know, like I said, I get a lot of this, I get a lot of crap on the left because, oh, you know, Rob, like, oh, he, you know, he doesn't think he's black anymore, but he doesn't think he's this, he doesn't think he's that. And the reason why I understand this is because I fundamentally believe, and this is what the movie gets at, and this is why so many different people are connecting with it, that these issues that are going on with poor white people and poor black people, we'll call them, we'll just call them rednecks and ratchets. Oh, that's good. That should be a book. That should, should be my next book, Rednecks and Ratchets. But we'll call them rednecks and ratchets. Rednecks and ratchets. And when I talk about, and, and again, I'm like trying to be PC, but you know, it's just going to be problematic, whatever. We'll just say rednecks and ratchets. We'll just say rednecks, prototypical poor white people that act in trashy ways that 
are, you know, reflected in, in J.D. Vance's family in Hillbilly Elegy. And ratchets, everybody knows what ratchets are. Ratchets are Black people just acting hood rats, talking loud on cell phones, like doing all this stuff. Like, we all know what it is. We all know what it is when we see it. And what Black liberals will not tell you, especially the Black liberals that have ascended to the media elite and spend so much of their time lecturing white liberals about what they're supposed to do to be less anti-racist. And this is what I'm going to tell you something, because I know some of these black liberals that have these, these large platforms, they don't like ratchets either. They are not here for ratchets any more than anybody else's, regardless. And just like these white liberal elites, they are not here for rednecks either. So, like I said, it's a class thing, this this white privilege conversation. And so, like I said, the white privilege conversation is complicated and tricky, and I'm sure we'll come back to it. But the reason why leftist movie critics hate Hillbilly Elegy so much is that it dents the white privilege narrative. Because if it didn't dent the white privilege narrative, then like I said, there... If white privilege was this thing, there would be no white suffering. There would be no poor white people. There would be none of that stuff. But we have it. And we have stories like J.D. Vance's. And the reason why they talk about this stuff bootstrapping, because I'm a I'm a born and I'm a born and bred bootstrapper. I will always be a bootstrapper. When I was testifying against that that, you know, that uh, AOC in Congress. Um, I wasn't I was gonna say something else, but we we don't do names here. I, I don't think that's respectful. But when I was testifying against AOC in Congress and I said, basically, you know, I came up from nothing and this is where I am. And there's no reason that anybody on earth can't do the same thing. I've never thought that I'm particularly exceptional, particularly special. I'm just somebody that worked really hard and I'm, I'm, I'm pretty smart about leveraging, you know, whatever it is that I've got going on for me and, and working to build things. And these people hate the idea that you can pull yourself out of your background and you can make something out of yourself. That's why the left hates J.D. Vance so much. That's why they hate this movie so much. Because the idea that you can pull yourself out from whatever it is that you've came from. And if you guys, you know, and I'm, we're not going to go into a Rob Smith pity party here. But if you've read my book, and a lot of you have, you'll know that I was physically abused as a child. I'm a sexual abuse survivor. I had a, like I was raised in a single parent household. I went to failing public schools in Ohio. Like all like I had all the the chips stacked against me. But yet for some reason and I always ascribe this to the military and I bet if I were to have a conversation with JD Vance, which I should try to book him on this podcast when we get a little a little bit bigger, you know, some people won't deal with me yet. It's okay. We'll get there. But it would be so interesting to have that conversation because like I said, I'm a bootstrapper. And like J.D. Vance, the military instilled in me that discipline and that integrity and that iron will to survive and to succeed and to thrive. And I believe that everybody has that in them. You don't necessarily have to go to the military to find it. But I do know that a lot of these people will never find it, white or black. You'll never find it if you're black if you subscribe to this idea that white privilege is such a huge thing that is keeping you down in life. And if you're a poor white person, you will never get to where you're going 
if you do not take responsibility for your own actions and take a really hard look in the mirror and think about why your life doesn't look the way you want it to look or why you're not making as much money as you could be, or, you know, you're a little heavier than you should be and all of that stuff. And and I'm going through a lot of that stuff right now in my, my life. And if white privilege were so damaging to black Americans, there wouldn't be any black American excellence. We wouldn't have Bob Johnson and we wouldn't have Kathy Hughes and we wouldn't have Oprah and we wouldn't have Barack Obama and we wouldn't have, you know, he, well, you know, Barack Obama's is black excellence in an entirely different way, but we'll just, we'll leave that there. But what I'm trying to say is we wouldn't have such high performing, high achieving African-Americans. And a lot of people, you know, a lot of black liberals, I'd say, well, they're not anomalies. They're anomalies. They're not like the regular person, not the regular person. But what about so many black business owners that we have now? So many black entrepreneurs, so many black people who have found social media and decided to use social media to build a business. And if white privilege and if all of this stuff was such a major negative and debilitating force in the lives of Black Americans, that we wouldn't have all the Black American excellence that we have today. We wouldn't have so many Black business owners. We wouldn't have so many Black and successful people. And speaking of Black business owners and and Black successful people, one Black business owner is facing a whole lot of backlash for telling his patrons to stop twerking in his restaurant. And we will get into that after the break. There's a restaurant called True Kitchen and Cocktails in Dallas, Texas, and its owner, Kevin Kelly, is pissing off a lot of people on Black Twitter and just Twitter itself with this rant that went viral after diners got a little too turned up by the DJ. Listen to this. I invested a lot of money into buying this building, into developing this concept so black people can have somewhere nice to go to, okay? Somewhere where we can feel good about ourselves as a... Come on! Stop the music, please! Somewhere where our people can feel good about ourselves as a culture, okay? No, no, real talk. And so all this twerking and shit, take it to Prime, take it to Pink, don't bring it here because we're a restaurant. And so beyond that, 75% of my customers are ladies. And I want men to show respect for themselves for how they carry themselves here. So how can I tell the men to respect themselves and you guys are twerking on glass here? If you want to do it, get the fuck out of my restaurant. Because I did it for our people and I did it for our culture. So don't do it, no, don't do it again. I don't want to hear it. If you don't like it, get out because I don't need your money. I need to pr- provide something for my people. And don't do it again. Thank you. There's a lot to unpack here. First of all, what business owner wants to tell paying patrons that if they don't like it, get the fuck out of my restaurant? And what way is that to run a business? First of all, so who does that? Second of all, and it's so funny because I know listening to that, you you guys probably thought I was going to be like, oh, you know, he was right. And these people shouldn't be twerking and all that stuff. And, And, you know, maybe there's a little truth to that. But if you listen to that clip, do you know what song was playing in the background? This is No Limit by g Easy and Cardi B. Like, that's a twerk song. It, it's turned up. And so, look, I, I just want to wanna read a couple of tweet reactions to this because I think this is very interesting. So one guy on Twitter, he says, 
The owner of True Kitchen spoke like a self-hating Black person who uses, quote, Black-owned business and, quote, doing it for the culture labels to capitalize off Black people, but secretly could care less about the Black community. Now let's unpack that, first of all, because this is so, it's so funny. And and the reason why I love doing this podcast is because there's so many things that happen that are just cultural. And and this is about cultural conservatism. This is, this, this, what's going on right here. And there are so many people that as soon as you step up and say, stop acting ratchet, stop acting crazy, stop acting foolish, you're self-hating. And this person is like, oh, well, you know, he's just saying Black-owned business and doing it for the culture to capitalize off Black people, but he couldn't care less about the Black community. Okay, so this man couldn't care less about the Black community, but he's invested his Black money into a restaurant for Black people in what is, you know, what I'm assuming is a a, a Black-oriented area in Dallas, Texas. And this is that bullshit that pisses me off. And this is especially the stuff that comes from, from Black Twitter on the left, because these people have never built anything in their entire lives. They've never invested anything in, into the community. They, they never do anything. But they'll talk all of this stuff about somebody that is, you know, actually trying to do something. Do I think that he should have talked to restaurant patrons like that? No. It was overly emotional. It was unprofessional. And, and, and it's just not something. Honestly, if I was sitting in there, I'd probably never go back to the restaurant. But... At the end of the day, there was a nugget of truth in what he was saying. But then again, like I said, don't expect people to not be twerking the restaurant if you got a DJ playing g Easy and Cardi B. Because when I go to and when I was when I was living in Brooklyn, there was a restaurant. I hope it's still there, but I don't know because you know New York is seems to be trying to destroy every restaurant that they've had there. There was a restaurant called Woodland in Brooklyn. And that restaurant was, you would walk by it, like you would just see, it was obviously, you know, it was, um, it was Brooklyn's, it was predominantly Black-oriented, Black-oriented restaurant, lots of Black people going in there, whatever. And you would walk by that restaurant, and if you, you know if you go there for brunch, what experience you're getting. I've been to that restaurant, and I know, like, when I want to turn up and have some cocktails and listen to a DJ and have it be loud, I would go there, because that is what I was in the mood for. And if I was in the mood to be fancy and bougie, I would go to Flatiron. I can do whatever. So it's really just different. It's different strokes for different folks. It's different experiences for different moods that you're in. And the thing with this restaurant is that this owner was not creating the experience, the upscale experience that he was trying to go for by virtue of the fact that he had a DJ playing g Easy and Cardi B. So don't have Cardi B playing in the background and then and, and be serving drinks and expect for people not to react in that way. So and another, another person on Twitter said, because the person that initially tweeted this and made it go viral, he said, this is restaurant suicide. This guy goes, nah, bro, that ain't restaurant suicide. That's real shit. We need more black restaurants that are actually restaurants, not happy hour and shaking ass spots. Again, if this dude didn't want people shaking no ass, he should have been playing Cardi B. So at the end of the day, this person should create the atmosphere that he want. And, and I'm telling you, black, white, whatever, when you create the atmosphere for high end lounge dining, those are the types of people black, white, or whoever that are going to come to that atmosphere. And and this is about 
what Wendy Williams, the, the queen of all media, the queen, like the Wendy Williams, who, by the way, made the space for me as a black gay man to be, well, one of the people that made the space for me to even be able to have a platform like this and to talk about politics, talk all this stuff. I love Wendy Williams. And she said, she has this, this phrase, you know, there's, there's kitchen table talk. And Wendy Williams says that there's ways that we talk amongst ourselves as African-Americans that we might not necessarily want the world to see. And with this situation going viral, this exposes kitchen table talk. I don't think that that man knew that he was being filmed. I don't think that he intended for this to go viral and be like literally a worldwide trending topic on, on Twitter right now, but it happened. Um, And this was kitchen table talk. This was a black man that was a restaurant owner that was talking to black people because there was none but black people in a restaurant. All right. This was not for um, the mainstream. This is not for whatever. Like this was a black man talking to black people about the way that they should carry themselves in his establishment. Would I have said, get the fuck out of my restaurant if I was a business owner? Absolutely not. But that's not my restaurant. I don't got a dime investing in that restaurant. And God knows I'm not running to, to make any investments in that restaurant right now at, at this point. But he was giving some real, this tough love to people. But you know what? Honestly, there is an audience for that. He was not attracting that audience with Cardi B and g Easy playing over the speakers. I'm sorry. Like, he was dead wrong. And there's a young lady on Twitter that said, he's not wrong. As a restaurant owner, he wants a specific ambiance. Twerking is not it. He gave them choices to freely express themselves. But please respect his establishment, his investment, and take the antics to the appropriate places. That's Business 101. And I would disagree with her uh, and say, no, Business 101 is creating the vibe that you want. And he created a vibe that was obviously not what he wanted. But I just think it's a very interesting conversation because it's a cultural conversation. And it's always the conversation that people don't want to have about like how you conduct yourself in public. And not only did they have this restaurant trending, they also have Ruth's Chris trending because Ruth's Chris is, is a fairly high-end steakhouse. And people were trying to kind of make the comparison that, you wouldn't do this at Ruth's Chris. Why would you do it there? You wouldn't do this here. Why would you do it there? Look, Ruth's Chris is not playing twerk music from the DJ. When I go to Ruth's Chris, I don't like Ruth's Chris. When I go to Ruth's Chris, I'm, first of all, if I go to Ruth's Chris, I'm about to sit down and pay $75 for a fucking steak. So I'm probably, you know, going to be, you know, looking and feeling my best and, and not, you know, feel like twerking. But... That's the interesting thing about this conversation. It's all about specific experiences that you want. And for me, as a Black person, I like, look, I love, one of my favorite things to do in New York City is go to Dallas Barbecue. And you know what you're getting when you go to Dallas Barbecue in New York City. You are getting ratchet, you are getting lots of stuff to look at, and you're getting some good fried chicken wings. And honestly... I would always like to be the person, as we're talking about class, apparently class and classism is the theme of this week's episode. I always want to be able to go to Dallas Barbecue and have some hot chicken wings and then switch it up a couple of days later 
and like go to Ruth's Chris and be high end because that's what that's what I like. You know, that I, I think that we should all, you know, do a little bit more of switching it up. And bo- bottom line, to put a pin in this particular conversation, that business owner has a lot of work to do. He has a lot of work to do in how he runs his business. He has a lot of work to do in how he talks to the patrons that are allowing his business to be in existence. And he has a lot to do in terms of creating the type of atmosphere that is going to attract the people that he obviously wants to attract. Because it's obvious to me from watching this clip and in looking at how this conversation is playing out over Twitter, that he doesn't even like the crowd that he's attracting. So that is a very uh, that's a very interesting conversation, and I'm pretty sure that there will be more stuff like that. But that is it for this week's episode of Rob Smith is problematic. Talked about classism, talked about hillbilly elegy, and problematics. What I want you to do is if you follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Rob Smith Online, and I'm going to put up these clips of the show and let's start the conversation there. What do you think about this restaurant owner? What do you think about white privilege? What do you think about Hillbilly Elegy? I want to know. I want to continue to have this conversation in the future. So until next week, Problematics, I'm out. Thanks so much to my sponsors. Please support them so we can bring the show to you for free. Visit my show page at robsmithisproblematic.com and please tell your friends about the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts so other people can learn what the show is about, be introduced to me, all of these problematic thoughts, and introduced to our community of problematics. Thanks to producer Stephen Calabria and researcher Aaron Kleekman and executive producers Debbie and Newt, part of the Gingrich 360 Network. Part of the Gingrich 360 Network.